This is America on the Road, named Best Radio Show by the International Automotive Media Conference, and now in its 29th year on the air. Thanks for being with us as we bring you the latest automotive information from around the world. The heat wave that is battering many sections of the country this summer is also playing havoc with the range of electric cars. We'll give you the details on a comprehensive study coming up later in this segment. Dodge has just unveiled limited edition Mopar 2023 Dodge Challenger and Charger models. They could be an excellent bargain. They're only going to be about 200 or so going out there, but uh, we'll have details for you on that. America on the Road is brought to you by drivingtoday.com, your testdriver.com, emlancy.com, the publisher of my latest book, Dance in the Dark, and Mercury Insurance. If you're looking to save some money, you should switch to Mercury for your auto and home insurance. Californians save an average of $670 with Mercury, so imagine how much you could save. Get a quote today at drivingtoday.com slash auto insurance. That's drivingtoday.com slash auto hyphen insurance. There's our old hyphen again, Chris. Hi, I'm Jack Red. With me is co-host Chris Teague. He's editor of yourtestdriver.com. Chris, how has the summer been developing for the Teague family? Summer is, and I'm going to say this knowing that it's much hotter ever, almost everywhere else in the world, but summer's been quite warm here so far and had some good driving weather, though uh, I will say it, it rains almost every day now, but short periods here and there. How about you guys? Uh, it's been great. I love summer. I, the only part about summer that I dislike is the fact that it's going to be over at some point, right? And I, I get nostalgic for summer, even in the midst of summer, which is kind of silly to do. We're, we're still in July, you know. Know, there's a lot of summer to go, but uh, inexplicably, some leaves are falling off my trees in front of my house, and uh, that happens in July, oddly. Well, anyway, that's what's going on with us. As you longtime listeners know, Chris lives in one end of the country. I live at the other. Each week, we get together to talk about cars, the car industry, and how you can get the most for your automotive dollar. And we review a couple of vehicles each week, of course, too. Coming up a little later, Mini has given us a look at the interior of its upcoming all-new 2025 Cooper, and it shows an instrument panel and dash unlike any other. It's, it's kind of wild. We'll tell you more, including our thoughts on it, coming up. And in this week's True Crime Files Automotive Edition, a Stellantis engineer has pleaded guilty in a diesel emissions case, and you won't believe the sentence he's getting. I wouldn't mind having it, I'll tell you, and we'll tell you about the sentence when little later in the show. Do you ever wonder whether you should buy a synthetic or conventional motor oil? Do you do that, Chris? Do you wonder about it? Do I wonder about it? I just buy synthetic. (laughs) Yeah. Well, if you want to know the differences and uh, have a a little deeper dive, we have a great guest uh, for our listeners. Sean Wynn is lubricant science and technology specialist at Pennzoil. What a knowledgeable guy. I mean, uh, he has forgotten more about motor oil than most people will ever know. He has answers to all the questions about motor oil, and I can't wait to speak with him about that. Uh, Of course, reviewing cars is one of the things we like to do a ton, and uh, what's the vehicle you have, Chris? I drove the 2023 Jeep Compass. It's a very comfortable, compact SUV. Can't wait to yeah. talk all about it. I had a chance to drive it from here out to uh, Indio, California and back uh, fairly recently. So we have a nice chat about that. And I was excited. I was driving the next generation of a true icon of the industry. I was among the first of the auto journalists in the country to drive the all-new 2024 Ford Mustang GT. Let's dive into the news, and uh, extreme heat is creating havoc in a lot of places and uh, creating a lot of news, creating a lot of buzz. Uh, it's also creating problem for electric vehicles, and there's a new study out that indicates how much of a problem uh, quantifies it, and it's, it's pretty radical stuff. 
This is a, a study by Recurrent, which is a Seattle EV battery and range company. They do analytics on that. And uh, what they have found is significant range declines, up to 31% when the thermometer goes over 100 uh, degrees. Uh, Pretty serious, isn't it, Chris? Yeah, you know, we talk a lot about cold weather EV range and using the heat and all those things and how they impact it. But the same thing is true on the other end of the spectrum, as you said. 31% is a pretty serious hit to range. I mean, uh, and that's before we're not even taking into account uh, driving habits or anything else. That's just the temperature that's affecting the battery here. So uh, really interesting stuff, Jack. I think, you know, as more people own EVs, I'm actually just looking at a map right now. Uh, where the temperatures are, as more people get these EVs, uh, get EVs in these places, uh, I think this is going to be become more of a, we're going to have more data to look at, but this is really interesting. Right. 100 degrees seems like a, maybe the magic number because the uh, decline in range is not nearly as radical if it's just 90 degrees or, or 80 degrees. I guess most electric vehicles, I think, like to operate in temperatures that you and I like to operate in, right? <laughs> that 31%, that's a big deal. And if we're going to have higher temperatures going forward in the summers, uh, who knows, that that's, affects things. This is a pretty comprehensive study, too. They looked at 65 different models. What they found, uh, some other findings were also interesting. Uh, this I found particularly interesting. Tesla's vehicles had the smallest range uh, degradation, degradation in heat, which is great. But they also had the widest gap between their real-world range and the EPA estimates. I mean, how do you account for that? <laughs> it's kind of bizarre, isn't it? Yeah, you know, they've done a very good job with thermal management and the batteries also. That, you know, even in cold weather, we talk about charging speeds and slowing down. And Tesla's have done, or Tesla has done a good job with their heat pumps and things. So that's not that surprising to hear. Uh, but the, the difference in range between EPA and, and actual and real world is, I guess, also not that's is not surprising. Yeah. That's kind of a shame. I mean, they, they do score really well in range on the EPA estimates, but if they're not achieving that, really, if the, who knows? Is there a diesel gate here? Are they rigging things to uh, do better on the EPA testing? Then uh, I'm not suggesting they are, but <laughs> it strikes me it's not impossible. Well, let's, let's switch. I'm not going to ask you to comment on that, Chris, so you don't end up in court. This is kind of cool. These are the new Mopar Dodge Challenger and Charger models just introduced, um, introduced moments ago, practically. They've done this for several years. And talk about, you know, some of these limited editions uh, are not all that limited. Uh, this is a pretty limited edition. There's 200 units of each model for the United States, another 20 for Canada of each of these models. And uh, we have pretty good stuff. Some custom-made stuff. And for a price, the special edition package is only uh, $39.95, $4,000 essentially. Uh, production will start in September, deliveries in October. Neat stuff. This is on Challenger and Charger RT Scat Pack wide-body vehicles. Performance from these is crazy. <laughs> you know, they have the big Hemi motor, 485 horsepower. What's your take on these limited edition kind of models? I'm a big I'm a big Challenger fan, Jack. I think I, I've always really liked the Challenger, and I always like that Dodge. You know, they'll make as many of these cars as people will buy. They don't make them that too too precious, except for this special edition, which is very limited. And you know, it's the last year for these cars, at least in gas form. So um, I'm happy to see them send it off with a, a limited edition like this. Yeah, great stuff. I mean, a lot of the stuff has to do with appearance, but there's also some functional stuff. The appearance stuff is. They're in pitch black clear coat paint. They have matte black graphics and uh, the Mopar blue stripes along the hood over the roof and the deck lid. I mean, very old school 
<laughs> takes me back. Blue grill badge, you know, Mopar, a bunch of Mopar stuff all over. And, um, you know, Mopar has a, a bit of a name for itself, doesn't it? Yeah, the old school muscle heads or muscle car heads in the, the crowd are probably going to scream. I don't know a ton about Mopar, but the name has been a huge part of my family's life since I was a kid. We, My uncle ran a transmission shop and all the all the Dodge Plymouth and Chrysler cars coming in. So, um, you know, it'll be interesting to see what they do with the electrification, with, with electrification moving forward. Yeah, I mean, we used to call all those vehicles from the Chrysler Corporation in those days Mopars. You know, he's driving a Mopar. <laughs> That kind of thing. So, well, uh, Mini has teased its uh, 2025 new Cooper by showing a picture of the uh, interior of the vehicle, and it's pretty cool, actually. I mean, I'm not necessarily one who loves digital dashes, especially that don't have instrument panels right in front of you. I'm kind of a, a fan of, of seeing that. I think that was a nice innovation when they did that about 1930 or so, or maybe sooner. My 1926 Nash had its speedometer in the middle of the, the dashboard, not in front of the driver. Well, you, you've seen this photo. What do you, what do you think about the, the new Mini interior? They've done such a good job at translating the sort of classic Mini funkiness into this the new generation of EV. Um, I, I never loved the, the large like having everything on the center screens, like you get into a Tesla, you said you have the speedometer, everything's right on the center screen. But it looks like the Mini has a small panel in front of the driver that might be like a pseudo head-up display. Yeah. Um, kind of like you see in the Ford Mustang Mach-E, the little the display panel there. So uh, I think, you know, you're still going to get some traditional elements. But man, what a funky-looking interior. They have uh, textiles on the dash, I think, and then the giant circular screen that you mentioned. The animations on it look fantastic. So I can't wait to drive it, even though I'm not a huge fan of the the layout as it is. Yeah, well, I look forward to seeing it, too. And we teased this about uh, true crime, so let's get to this story. A Fiat Chrysler engineer, a guy named Emmanuel Palma, has pleaded guilty to um, a felony in regard to defrauding the EPA and customers, kind of a dieselgate thing. Here is what I find interesting. He made a plea agreement, and he's in the process of relocating from Michigan to Italy, and he won't serve any jail time. <laughs> so basically, his sentence is going from Michigan to Italy, which is a pretty good trade, I think. Uh, probably a very good idea. Um, so interesting that... Uh, you plead guilty to something like that, and you end up uh, maybe making out pretty well. Yeah, is there somewhere we can sign on to that? I would go, depending on where in Italy you're going. I'd just like to say, it's interesting to see the breadth of the charges that came with this situation. Like, we're hearing about engineers being charged for this. I mean, like, the CEO and the leadership is one thing, but this like a sort of line-level employees getting charges is another thing altogether. Well, certainly FCA, which was uh, is now owned by Stellantis, paid about $300 million uh, in criminal penalties and uh, some civil penalties, too, another huge huge number. But I don't know of too many people who went to jail over this. And uh, as you say, it, it goes up the food chain, and um, the buck should stop, I think, pretty high on that food chain as opposed to line-level engineers being charged with this and and then pleading guilty and having to uh, be exiled to Italy for the rest of their <laughs> yeah, life. Yeah, taking an Italian vacation for a while. Yeah. Well, when we come back, we'll be road testing some pretty cool vehicles. And I've uh, totally forgotten what your very cool vehicle is. No, I have not. It is the Jeep Compass. See, it has come back to me. And I am uh, road testing the Ford Mustang GT for 2024. All new, all singing, all dancing. So stay with us for that. And we will be right back right here on America on the Road. Welcome back to America on the Road with Christy Jackie. 
with you. We're so glad you're with us. If you like America on the Road, please let others know about us and, you know, know when we air on the radio station on which you listen to this or pass along a podcast to them. We would appreciate that very much. It's road test time on America on the Road. And Chris, you were driving a vehicle, and I also got a chance to drive fairly recently. Uh, tell us about it. Yeah, Jack, I spent the week in the 2023 Jeep Compass. Uh, this was the high-altitude trim, so the very top of the line. It started around $40,900, and mine was decked out to around $43,000 with all the options and packages. So this is not the cheapest compact SUV that you can buy, uh, but it does start at a reasonable price, Jack. I think around $30,000 for the Sport model, which is the entry-level trim. It's not not too bad of a, a, a price tag there. Uh, but Jeep didn't do too much to it for 2023, other than giving it a new turbocharged engine. Um, have you driven the 2023 model with the updated powertrain? I have, and I, it's really a revelation. I mean, it is so much better with that powertrain. I think they had changed the interior, I think, the year before, and then they uh, upgraded the powertrain. And what a difference. So much more torque. It's just the drivability is a lot better. I agree. And it sounds like it, the engine itself sounds less strained. It's not as loud as the outgoing uh, four-cylinder model. But uh, this makes 200 horsepower and 221 pound-feet of torque is paired to an eight-speed automatic transmission. And all Compass models come with all-wheel drive. It's got to have the, the beefy off-road uh, capability here. But one of the things that really struck me about this SUV, Jack, over something like a RAV4 or a CRV is how comfortable the interior is. I think Jeep goes a little bit further on the extra mile there with uh, seat padding and support. Uh, this thing really does feel a little bit like a sort of a shrunk down Grand Cherokee inside. And I'm not saying that it's super luxurious, but the comfort level is about the same. Uh, the seats are just fantastic. I hopped in it after a New England Motor Press Association event uh, in Boston last week and drove straight to Maine at about, I don't know, midnight. And I was very tired driving, you know, the three hours. And it was just fantastic. It was just a, a very nice, very comfortable, relatively quiet inside SUV. Uh, the high altitude trims got heated and ventilated front seats, a heated steering wheel, um, and all the tech that you could want in here. So very comfortable interior. As I mentioned before, it's very quiet inside when you're on the highway. And there's decent power there, too. I mean, I think you're you're not going to be winning any drag races here, but I think kind of sort of a lifted compact SUV is not the vehicle I would choose to do that in the first place with. Um, but again, there's good power for passing, good power for reaching highway speeds, and it, and it cruises very calmly on the highway. So I, I have no complaints there. Um, and Jeep, you know, it has great off-road capability, too. So there's generally a big trade-off here uh, between on-road comfort and off-road capability. And I think they struck a good balance between the two with this one. Um, Inside the technology here, Jack, this is Uconnect. I'll ask you about it in just a minute, but it's one of my favorite infotainment systems in the world. Uh, the Compass comes standard with an 8.4-inch screen, but my tester had a 10.1-inch display with a digital gauge cluster. And what a great tech setup this is. I think Uconnect is one of the best, one of the most intuitive and most responsive systems on the market. Uh, and the fifth generation, which this vehicle has, is even better. Uh, Jack, what are your thoughts on the new Uconnect? I think they hit it out of the ballpark. I think they've done a really, really good job in the Compass particularly. Uh, everything just seems to work very very well you know no furbles on that a lot of, you know a lot of problems with a lot of infotainment systems things like apple carplay not connecting or not connecting the second time you enter the car that kind of stuff i had no issues I, and just like what i was presented with yeah i agree with that you know one of the things i wrote about this vehicle this morning for your test driver was that Jeep does a really good job, or Stellantis in general, with Uconnect. When you start the vehicle, the functions are available from the time you turn the key or press the button. So um, in my Volkswagen Golf R, for, for instance, and our Volvo XC90, you start trying to fiddle with the climate settings after you just started the car. 
and nothing happens. And then when it does happen, it's, you know, reacting like crazy, trying to catch up with your fingers. And that's never been the case with, with the Uconnect uh, units that I've used. Uh, so just a great all around job there with the technology. But uh, so it comes standard with automatic, emer automatic emergency braking, lane keep assist, and then you can add a whole bunch of other things to it. Mine had the whole package of blind spot monitoring, rear cross traffic alerts, um, which is part of a package that pushes that price higher and higher. So, well, I was driving an icon and it's uh the, the newest generation of an icon. I don't want to go through the entire Mustang history, but it is a proud one. And certainly um, the vehicle was a hit when it was introduced in 1964. They sold half a million of them uh, in the first model year alone, just kind of crazy numbers in those days. Um, a real sensation uh, reported on the news. Uh, others rushed to copy um, and um, here we are many, many years later, 60 years later, I guess, or close to it, and the market has changed radically, right? I mean, everybody is buying crossovers, nobody's buying cars, or not nobody, but uh, very few. Uh, the domestic manufacturers have largely walked away from even building cars. The Mustang is the last uh, car standing at Ford Motor Company. But here it is in the seventh generation, and I, th I think it's a a really, really good vehicle. I got a chance to drive both the Mustang GT and the EcoBoost version of the car at a, at a recent event just days ago. Uh, there is also a new version called the Dark Horse. It is a high-performance version, a higher-performance version than the Mustang GT. But the uh, subject of this review is the Mustang GT because I think there's probably the most interest in that one. And uh, this, of course, is powered by a 5-liter, normally aspirated V8 engine. Talk about old school. At the same time, this is not strictly a vehicle for uh, baby boomers and, and beyond who just remember the old days of GTOs and uh, Camaros and those kind of things. And because there's a lot of tech in this vehicle, too. If you were to buy the EcoBoost, you'd get about 315 horsepower. That's nice from a turbocharged four-cylinder engine. Pretty good fuel economy, much better fuel economy than the Mustang GT. But heaven knows, I just uh, fell in love with the Mustang uh, GT for all that it offers. And you can get one for a base price of about $45,000. That is a very, very nice performance car with 480 horsepower, tons of torque, a bunch of good stuff. The vehicle that I spent the most time in was a base model, not a premium uh, GT, not a premium level GT, but had the performance package. And I think that's kind of an interesting way to go. This gives you most, uh, it gives you a high performance vehicle and a lot of the stuff that you don't really need. Like, I like the fact that it had cloth seats. I didn't mind that it had a single climate control as opposed to dual zone climate control. I mean, you're only in the front seats. I mean, it's not a big area that you need to heat and cool. So this is a vehicle I, I liked a lot. I love the, uh, the torque it offered. As I say, 480 horsepower, 415 pound-feet of torque. You can get it up, I think, to 486 horsepower with the performance pack and uh, the active exhaust, which is pretty cool. It also had a six-speed manual transmission with rev matching, which I immediately fell in love with. Although, the fact of the matter is, this vehicle has so much torque that you can pick a gear. I, I often pick third gear through the mountains uh, above Los Angeles and just went through the corners using the flexibility of the engine. So I didn't have to row gears as much as you would think. What's your take on that, Chris? I think that's a fantastic way to get people interested in driving both a manual transmission and a sports car. And I think Ford's done a really good job at tuning the Mustang's chassis to make it an engaging handling car. Like these are not 
the muscle cars of days past where, you know, straight line, you do great, but anything with a, you know, a curve in it is going to give you trouble. These are really, really balanced cars, and I, I can't wait to drive it. Right. The car I, as tested that I was driving was about $53,000, something like that. It had the performance package, which has all this good stuff, a tower brace for added stiffness, limited slip differential, wider rear wheels and tires, larger Brembo b- brakes, uh, brake ducts to cool the brakes, an auxiliary engine oil cooler. So, I mean, this is almost a track-ready car. I mean, maybe that's pushing it a little bit, but active exhaust is pretty cool, adds horsepower, uh, keeps your neighbors happy. You can get a MagnaRide magnetically adjustable active suspension that does a good job. This is just a vehicle that I liked a lot. I, I, there's not much to complain about except maybe fuel economy. And if you're buying a performance car and are that concerned about fuel economy, well, I scratch my head over that. Nice interior, gone fully digital. Uh, this is just, it's so full of stuff. 13.2 inch center, center stack and a uh, 12.4 inch digital gauge package. It's just filled with with great stuff. And uh, I'm not sure how the dyed-in-the-wool Mustang people will inj- uh, will adjust to the digital interior. You have thoughts on that? Yeah, I think the uh, traditionalists are going to scream anytime there's a change like that. But in a lot of cases, it's for the best. I haven't seen the new gauge cluster, but what I've seen on, on paper at least looks promising. So uh, it gives you sort of a customizable view on your car. I, I don't know what there would be to complain about. Yeah, absolutely customizable. You can have it where it it looks like two iPads sitting side by side, or it can be integrated. I kind of like the integrated presentation uh, better, I think. But uh, so many choices with the new Mustang. I'm so so glad that Ford Motor Company decided to stick with it. Uh, there's no hybrid option. There's no electrified option. If you want that, of course, there's the Mustang Mach-E. Uh, which is kind of a, a completely different animal. But uh, I'm just glad this, this vehicle is coming to the marketplace. I think it's going to be successful out there because I think there's enough people that still want a vehicle like this. And uh, with the others, like Chevy Camaro going out of production, it just seems like uh, there's some opportunity there. I agree. The market will be Ford's for at least a couple of years. Yeah. Absolutely true. Well, when we come back, we will have an interview about motor oil with an absolute expert on that, Sean Wynn is with Pennzoil. So stay with us for that, and we'll be right back right here on America on the Road. I got this letter from a reader the other day, and I thought I'd share it with you. I'm on vacation on the beach in Key Biscayne and just finished reading Dance in the Dark. I thoroughly enjoyed it. Great plot and twists I never saw coming. You're really good at creating visual images. Congrats, you made my vacation all that more enjoyable. This is just the kind of feedback an author loves to hear. I'm Jack Nerad, host of America on the Road and the author of Dance in the Dark, a crime novel inspired by true crime. Many have told me that Dance in the Dark has all the realism of fatal photographs, my true crime account of the famous bathing suit model murder case. That's great to hear because Dance in the Dark is filled with suspense, plot twists, and surprises, but at the same time, it's a believable story in the tradition of writers like James M. Cain, Jim Thompson, and Elroy Leonard. Dance in the Dark is available in paperback and Kindle ebook form from Amazon.com, and it's available direct from the publisher EMLancy.com as well. If you have a chance, please look for it. If it makes your vacation better, We'll both be happy. That's Dance in the Dark by Jack Arney Red at Amazon.com or EMLancy.com. Thanks for giving it a look. Welcome back, everybody, to America on the Road. Jack Red back with you, and we have a terrific guest for you. Sean Wynn 
is lubricant science and technology specialist at Pennzoil. A lot of people have questions about motor oil. Motor oil is really a, a high-tech product these days, and uh, I want to talk to uh, Sean about that. Sean, thanks so much for being with us. We, we appreciate you being with us. Thanks, Jeff, for having me. Well, let's talk about the fact that motor oil is, is vastly different than it was, say, 20, 30, 40 years ago. Uh, we're seeing the rise of synthetics. Tell us a bit about uh, differences between conventional oil and full synthetic oil, for example. Well, I think we, we might have to go back a, a history a little bit, right, Jack? Yeah, let's uh, do the, that. The, the, the idea of a synthetic in the old days was very basic in, in nature. Um, the quality wasn't as good. And even conventional motor oils 20, 30 years ago, wasn't the high quality that that you that you see nowadays and the advancements of really good synthetic and high purity high ability to give you the protection based on the demand of the industry now uh, has also driven us to create new molecules at the time at the same time so the science of making synthetic is completely changed from the old uh, methodologies of distillation and, and, and fractionation and hydrotreating is gone to the science of, of what we saw with PAO 30, 40 years ago into what Shell makes or Penzo use now, which is uh, uh, pure plus technology, making molecules of motor oil from natural gas, making a very clean molecule. So hopefully we'll get a chance to discuss that and share with the consumers later on in our conversation. Yeah, well, I mean, uh, we can dive into it right now, but you're talking about engineering this on the molecular level, right? I mean, starting at square one rather than taking the petroleum and distilling it and then trying to alter that for various uses and various grades, various viscosities, all of that. Uh, walk us through that a little bit, how, why that's advantageous. Well, if, if you're, I'm going to nerd us up a little bit. Okay. I have here a molecule of synthetic motor oil. Oh, my. <laughs> and, and it's about somewhere between 25 to 30 molecules of carbon, right? And you can synthesize that and hydrotreat it through crude to refine it. But as you can see, there are other colored molecules in there. And those are entrapped in the molecules in certain ways that you can't really remove based on refining processes. And so you can only get to a certain purity. And, and the purity uh, will give you determinations of uh, either it's a conventional or a good synthetic. What Shell did 40 years ago, we decided let's start with one molecule and then build it up like Lego blocks, build it up one molecule, control the way we process it, so that we can remove all the contaminants, allow you to make a pure isoparaffin molecule that is super pure in quality, where we can control it to 99.5% purity in size, shape, and free of contaminants. That, therefore, gives us the advancements and, and the products uh, that, that leads to uh, the purity and, and the performance characteristics that we're able to see. As you know, I mentioned previously that this is this is conventional motor oil. This is group two, very good quality. As you see, liquid, uh, we will call it uh, water white, right? And this is our GTL made by natural gas. Very great. They look basically the same. And that's what consumers say. They say, well, all oil is all oil. But the benefit of a very good synthetic will give you some of the cold temperature benefits 
will give you high, uh, high temperature protection as well as purity. But you see the difference in the way the molecule pushes the air out of the system. So those are some of the key benefits of having a pure, pure clean product that give you a starting material to make a good synthetic oil that's demanded by the industry nowadays. And Penzol's uh, synthetic uh, GTL product is the starting material, which I call my base. The consumer call it base oil, but I call it my base soup to make my soup, uh, my oil soup. Oh, well, you talked, uh, you alluded to some of the benefits of a, of a good synthetic, one of which is, is coating properties when the engine is not running, right? Or uh, after the engine is shut down or before you start up, a, a lot of wear happens then. Talk about that a little bit and some of the other advantages of uh, a good synthetic motor oil. A synthetic oil will, first of all, has ability to uh, manage the temperature, right? It has a very good stable to viscosity index, basically the ability to stay normal, uh, very f fluid at, at, at cold temperature, and very uh, uh, good thermal resistance at high temperatures. That's one benefit. The other one is the ability for it to deliver because it, it flows better at cold temperature. It, it is able to deliver some of the protection of uh, volatility, the protection of delivering all the additives there for that, that you talk about the surface protection uh, on, onto those uh, wear metals, onto, onto the surfaces of your engine while the engines are idle. And especially when you start up your engine where there is a lot of, I guess when you could say frictional wear happens at those uh, start points. And so having products that's there to get there faster deliver the additives to give you the wear protection or the sacrificial wear protection helps to extend engine life, especially some of the premium products which we use. Uh, for the Penzol product, our, our premium product is our Penzol Platinum Ultra, which allows us to use the GTL product as well as the extreme performance additives to give it the best per uh, performance that we have, which is our best performance product in uh, what you are seeing in the industry. So you talk about this soup and, you know, basically, I guess the uh, the broth is the synthetic oil, uh, kind of the, the the beginning of it, right? And then you add ingredients to that to give various properties. Talk about that a little bit, would you? Well, you know, everybody, going back to our soup analogy, everybody's chicken soup, let's say, or, 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 or 5W20 motor oil looks the same when it comes out of the jar. But the flavor of that chicken noodle soup is different from one manufacturer to another, right? You can have canned, instant, or whatever it may be. And so the ingredients is crucial in that balance to make sure that that soup is flavorful, not too salty, not too spicy, and so forth. Uh, and you incorporate additives as anti-wear, antioxidants, in case you need more protection, detergency, dispersants, to help remove and take up all the byproducts of combustion to remove the acids that is incorporated uh, due to combustion. And of course, to dissipate some of the water, the moisture, and all the other components of, of combustion that creates that, I guess we would see the dark color that we see in the oil, right? And those are the products that need to be eliminated and removed when we drain the oil. The quality of the synthetic will also help to extend the life of that oil, give you longer durability during that drain. 
It could be 5000 or 20000 depending on the vehicle make and model. I mean, that's something that we're asked all the time uh, about drain intervals, right? And uh, a lot of people, I, I get pretty radical about it. I mean, they're draining their oil after 3,000 miles or something like that. I think with a, a full synthetic and with a, a, the array, a, a premium synthetic like Pennzoil Ultra Platinum, you can go longer with the oil, can't you? I mean, you can extend the, the interval a bit. We, we are comf- uh, confident that you can go longer. However, we still recommend that the, if you are under manufacturer warranty, just try to stay within that oil drain interval. May it be 5,000 or 10,000, depending on the make and model, right? Uh, but at the same time, we feel that if you are on a budget and you're using our premium product like our Penzo Ultra Platinum, we are comfortable with giving you that extended protection and the, the, the protection of extending the life of your engine by using our product. You know, we just introduced a 15-year half a million miles warranty on using our Penzo Ultra Platinum, whichever comes first. And that's an unheard of of, uh, warranty protection for your engine by using this premium product. What are the differences between Ultra Platinum and Pennzoil Ultra Platinum and other synthetic motor oils? There's a lot of synthetic motor oils on the shelf now. Uh, How do you differentiate yours from others? Well, it starts first with our base oil, right? We start with first first our, our base soup which is our gas to liquid technology that gives you unbeatable performance in the purity of the products. Now we're better than other synthetics in that we're better at the volatility control. We're better at the extreme temperatures up to the negative 40, negative 45 performance, uh, extreme uh, weather control. We're better at uh, longer oxidative stability, uh, better at aeration properties, of the oil because now oils are also used as hydraulics in some of the uh, automotive systems, right? So the benefit of oil is, is not the old uh, clean wear protection. Now is used in acid protection, seal protection, corrosion control, and all those components. So starting with that product, then we can then supplement with key performance additives that we tested and proven in our race uh, racing team with Penske Racing, uh, with our taxi fleets in New York, San Francisco, Las Vegas. So those differentiators help us to um, identify those anti-wear components, those anti-oxidative components, those little chemistries, basically kind of like ingredients of using organic ingredients in your soup versus the freeze-dried or, 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 or the generic products that you may buy on the shelf. Sean, I wish we had a lot more time to talk, but uh, we've come to the end of the interview. Uh, you've delivered so much great information. Uh, you're such a great spokesperson for Pennzoil. I appreciate you being on the show. Thanks so much for being with us. Oh, thank you for having me. Look forward to talking to you again. Stay with us, everybody. We'll be right back right here on America on the Road. Welcome back to America on the Road with Chris G. Question and answer time. We get questions from our listeners and we answer them uh, the best we can based on our lengthy period uh, doing this, reviewing cars and watching the car industry and just knowing stuff about cars. That's what we do. Chris, I've got a good question for you here from Wendy in Pacific Grove, California. Lovely, lovely spot, really. We're about to leave for a week's vacation in our new Tesla Model Y. Do you have any advice for us? What's your advice, Chris? 
Oh, what's my advice, Jack? Well, a lot of my advice is going to apply to people who drive gas vehicles as well. I think, you know, you're going to want to make sure that your tires have been rotated and are properly inflated. You're going to want to make sure that you have fluid in your windshield wiper, windshield wipers and, and that sort of thing. Obviously, you don't have motor oil to check and things like that. But uh, And then the other thing, uh, you know, EV specific, and this is not just a Tesla tip, is to make sure that you're planning your trip through or around charging stations um, because they might not be everywhere that you want to go. And I think, you know, Tesla does a very good job of having that in their infotainment system in the navigation uh, system so you can locate their chargers. But I think that's probably my biggest tip is to make sure that if you're going somewhere and you're going to stay somewhere for a while, do you have charging? Can you get back out with your charger? Um, and then the other stuff, again, is just normal road trip things. Make sure that your vehicle is actually ready to hit the road, that you have an emergency kit and things like that. Right. I would say the big difference between driving a, an EV like the Tesla Model Y and a, a gasoline car is you have to plan better. <laughs> you know, plan that. Just what you said. You know, make sure you know where the supercharger station, uh, superchargers are. Uh, make sure um, you can get there with a reasonable amount of range still in hand. You know, you don't want to get down to about 10% or something like that. Uh, as you roll in there. On the other hand, you don't want to roll in there with 60% charge either. Um, so it takes a, you know, a little bit uh, more um, pre-planning, I think, than you would when you can just hop in a car and off you go and you kind of set the, uh, set the navigation and it takes you where you uh, want to end up. Um, beyond that, um, the Tesla Model Y is a comfortable car with, uh, you know, certainly plenty of storage space and, uh, you know, uh, kind of fun to drive in its own way. Uh, so I, I think they'll have a blast. Uh, you know, just don't get frustrated and know that your range might not be exactly <laughs> what is promised from the beginning, you know, so don't stretch that out too much. Yeah, I was I, I, listening to you say that. It reminded me you might want to plan in time on your road trip. So don't plan on, you know, making a 400 mile drive when you have to stop in the middle and charge. So uh, I think it's a great points, Jack. Well, you made great points as well because you're very knowledgeable about this, Chris, and you certainly experienced that in the same way I have. Here's, a, I think, a good question, too, and I'm not sure, Chris, whether you've owned a two-seat car in, in your past. I've, I've had a couple, um, but this is from Remy in Madison, Wisconsin, and this is what Remy says. I kind of want to buy a two-seat sports car, but I've never had a two-seater before. Are there things I should think about before I pull the trigger on the purchase? Well, I think there's a lot of things that you need to think about. And you've, I've never owned a two-seat car, but I have spent considerable time with one uh, in my younger years before I had kids. And there was no problem at all. But I will say that if you plan on settling down, I mean, obviously life happens, things surprise you. But if that's even a twinkle in your eye at this point in time, that might be something that you would think about needing the extra two seats. If you're going to be hauling or not hauling, carrying anyone uh, that might have mobility disabilities, those sorts of things, they might be hard for them to get in and out of your vehicle. That's something else to think about. Um, and then storage. I mean, if you're a single person living on your own, you might not need the largest trunk to carry your groceries home every every weekend. But uh, that's still something to think about because they, they generally are smaller cars to begin with, right? So two seats, smaller trunk too. So I think those are probably my biggest considerations. What would you think, Jack? Yeah, those are good considerations and absolutely true. I mean, I've owned a uh, Chevrolet Corvette, a 1962 Chevrolet Corvette forever. Uh, for a while there, it was my own car, uh, only car. Um and it was great, but it's also limiting, right? You can only take one person, one other person with you. Um, that vehicle has a reasonable trunk. It actually has a trunk where you can put some stuff. But 
If I were going to take, say, a big screen TV home from, uh, you know, Best Buy or something like that, or uh, just, uh, you know, something big from Home Depot or Lowe's, um, it would be a, a struggle, a struggle that you wouldn't have even if you had something like a hatchback, right? You've got a, uh, a powerful sports car that at the same time uh, is a pretty practical car, and it's, it's a bit different than a two-seater. Yeah, and I even find limitations with that. You know, the the Golf has just as much, if not a little more, cargo space as like something like a Porsche Macan, and I still find trouble uh, with a, a weeks long grocery run for four people. It does it does max out the the cargo area there. Yeah, I mean, if you're used to even a a subcompact car with a back seat and you know a cargo area, going into a two seater. I love two seaters. Don't get me wrong. And you know, I had a Miata for a long time as a long-term test vehicle when I was at Motor Trend Magazine, and it was a blast. I loved it. But uh, again, pretty limiting in, in what you can take. And people buy cars not only for what they do day to day, but for what they do every now and then. And the now and then can be difficult with a two-seater. But like I say, there are advantages as well. So love that. Well, let's take another question. This is from Billy in Gun Barrel City, Texas. South of Dallas, I think, southeast of Dallas. Is it possible to get a good deal if I buy a car from a dealer online? I don't really want to go into the dealership and blow a Saturday morning dickering, but I don't want to pay more than I have to either. What do you guys think? I think it's completely possible to get a good deal from the dealership online. It depends completely on the dealer and on how you approach the situation. I think uh, dealers view a lot of internet buyers as being more transient than in-person buyers, so you may not be viewed as being as serious as someone who hauled out to the dealership on a Saturday morning to go uh, haggle over car prices. But at the same time, if you can present yourself as serious and you are legitimately looking at buying the car, uh, you can still negotiate pricing just as you would um, in person. Now, I've noticed through my own car shopping journey that more and more dealers have adopted this no-haggle model. So the price that they show is the price that they're going to charge you no matter how much you you know, kick around the can in the, in the finance office. But uh, I do think it's completely possible to buy a car online, uh, you know, and get a good deal. I think there's still the caution is if you don't know a lot about cars and haven't driven that model before, uh, it's probably a good idea to test drive it before you buy it online if you can. But I think those are my pointers. But yeah, it's, it's absolutely possible. Yeah, I think the big issue is what you consider a good deal. What do you consider a good deal? I mean, is it the absolute lowest price or is it a price pretty much like everybody else is paying? In that kind of situation, certainly a one price uh, situation is, is good for you uh, and you feel fine about it. Um, if you like to negotiate, I kind of like to negotiate a little bit. I don't know why it's kind of a fun game for me. Uh, maybe it's just an old guy thing. I don't know. But um I don't get out much, Chris, so when I can talk to somebody and, you know, deal with them, that's kind of fun. But um, I think it's absolutely possible now to get a good deal online to, and to negotiate online and uh, negotiate and, you know, do a lot of the deal online and then maybe get on the phone with somebody or, you know, use chat and go back and forth and uh, you'll arrive at something that's pretty good. So uh, I think there's a lot of good ways to use online buying these days. Well, yeah. tell us what, what's cool about uh, YourTestDriver.com this week, Chris. This week at Your Test Driver, we have an all-new review of the 2023 Golf R, and I wrote a long story about why I chose it over the Toyota GR Corolla, despite having put down a deposit on a GR Corolla, so go check that out. I also have a written review to accompany my radio review of the 2023 Jeep Compass, so that's going up and, and will be up in just a little bit with an in-depth look at the powertrain and the pros and cons of what I think would be uh, the ownership experience for a family. So really excited to get these stories up, Jack. How about you? 
Yeah, well, on a whole totally non-car oriented bend, my newest book, Dance in the Dark, is out there. It's a crime thriller inspired by true crime, available on Amazon as a Kindle and paperback edition. So if you're looking for a summer read, uh, you probably get through this in two or three days. And uh, I think be intrigued once you dive into it. That's what I've been told. So uh, look for that. Um, of course, as, as I think we mentioned earlier in the show, if you like the show, pass it on. Let people know the radio station on which you listen to America on the Road when you hear it. Uh, pass on our podcast. And there's a lot of ways to get America on the Road podcasts, aren't there, Chris? Yeah, if you go to the sportsmapradio.com website, there you can find us on the Saturday morning schedule. We have our uh, podcast on all the major platforms, as well as a formatted radio version of the show directly on the SportsMap website there. Yeah. Well, we appreciate the SportsMap Radio Network stations for carrying the show. And most of all, we appreciate you for listening to America on the Road whenever and however you are listening to it. And uh, listen to it again and again and pass it on to people who you think might like it. And join us again next time for another edition of America on the Road. Hi, this is Jackie Rad, host of America on the Road. I'd like to tell you about my latest book, Dance in the Dark. It's a crime novel inspired by true crime. Many people have told me it is the perfect follow-up to Fatal Photographs, my true crime account of the notorious Hollywood bathing suit model murder case. In Dance in the Dark, Jason Griffiths is a rock and roll drummer turned computer programmer who fears for his life, but he doesn't know why. After living a quiet life for years, suddenly his girlfriend leaves him, he meets the most beautiful woman he has ever seen, and within days he's wanted for the murder of a drug cartel enforcer, a murder he didn't commit. The cops think he did it, though, and so does the boss of the cartel. So he's stuck between the law and the mob with nowhere to turn. The only person who might be able to help him is the new woman in his life. But will his stunning new companion be an asset or an enemy? And can he escape the desperate situation he's trapped in? Dance in the Dark is available in paperback and as a Kindle ebook at Amazon and at E.M. Lancey Publishers. Right now, it's at a special low price that will save you five bucks. That's Dance in the Dark by Jack Arney Red. Thanks for checking it out.